Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that no one likes to fail. I hate failing, in case you were wondering. You know, in the vast majority of my positions over the years at various different companies, I have always strived for success and I've usually accomplished my goals. Now, I'm not trying to toot my own horn. This, is, this doesn't imply anything special about me. It's just that I absolutely hate to fail. And conversely, I love to succeed. And so I'm willing to do what needs to be done in order to succeed. However, if I'm being honest, there have been times in my life when it seems like success wasn't even an option. There have been times in my life when I have been out of my depth. I've taken things on that I was not prepared for or I just wasn't built for. And you could probably guess the outcomes, hardship, and even at times, failure. For instance, I was once a CVS store manager. That's something you probably didn't know about me. When I first took the position, I thought I was prepared for the challenge. After all, I had previous management experience in various different contexts. I did my best to provide excellent customer service. I was a troubleshooter by nature, but I soon learned that this wasn't all I needed in order to be successful at CVS. Running a big box store had many aspects, many of which I wasn't even really aware of uh, at the time I took the position. And the store manager was ultimately responsible for all of these various aspects. So change a section by following the planogram. Keep your inventory levels regulated. Make sure this week's sales stickers have been updated. Receive the truck shipment and get the products to the shelves. Manage the stock room. Be sure all is well in the pharmacy and the minute clinic and the front store. Get the scheduling and paperwork done. And be ready for the district manager's visit at any moment. My district manager didn't like to call ahead. And it was this last one that ended up driving all the others for me. Part of not wanting to fail was wanting everything in my store to be perfect at any given moment if I should receive a visit from my district manager. Now, sadly, that often meant that I shouldered tasks that I should have delegated to other people. I missed opportunities to empower others because I wanted to make sure that things were done just right according to the way I wanted them done. At other times, employees, vendors, uh, associates from other stores would come to me for help, and instead of asking an assistant manager or a cashier or a pharmacy technician to handle it, I usually jumped in and handled it myself. Now, we've heard it said that money doesn't grow on trees, but the truth is neither does time. And it didn't take long for me to realize that I was either going to burn out or the house of cards would just come tumbling down. I guess I should have read my Bible more in those days because as the early church began to grow, so did the issues and so did the tasks and the responsibilities of leadership. And yet instead of engaging in every leadership, leadership task themselves, the apostles recognized the situations that needed to be addressed they empowered new leaders to tend to the needs of the church, and they personally attended to those tasks that were appropriate for their office and their calling. 
And so today we're going to read about just such an occasion. And as we do, I believe that we'll see some very specific ways in which the wisdom of the apostles can inform our ministry as the body of Christ in our context today. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 6, and we are going to start in the very first verse. Acts 6, 1 and following says this. Now in, those, now, in these days, when, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a, pros a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, a few weeks ago, we read about an important moment, a crossroads moment, if you will, in the history of the early church. A problem arose. A man by the name of Ananias, along with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of land they brought some of the money to the apostles, but they claimed that they had given every last cent. Now, clearly, they did this to puff themselves up among the early Christian community, to be thought of more highly, to seem more holy. But Peter made it clear that Satan had led them into temptation, and their sin was not merely against the believers, but against God as well. And when we read this passage, we saw that God dealt very strongly with them in that very moment. In fact, both Ananias and Sapphira died as a result of their actions. Now remember that the book of Acts is not an exhaustive list of everything that happened in the early church. And so that should beg the question of why these certain things are included. I'd suggest that this event of Ananias and Sapphira was included in the book of Acts because it was a crossroads in the history of the church. As the passage itself implies, Satan was trying to derail the fledgling Christian community at the onset, and God stepped in very strongly to course correct. Now, while today's passage may not seem as dramatic as the story of Ananias and Sapphira, I would suggest to you that this is another crossroads moment for the early church, one that could have brought deep division, division that could have ripped the church apart if it had not been handled by good leadership. So what was happening in this passage that we just read this morning? If we're being honest, we see a tension not unlike ones that we continue to experience today in our culture. So let's take a look at what's going on here. All of the early Christians up to this point have been Jews. Everyone in our passage, including those in conflict here, are Jews or converts to Judaism. All of them are descendants of Abraham or are those who have aligned themselves with the descendants of Abraham. And so these are all Jewish people. But that doesn't mean that there aren't differences. 
In fact, very distinct differences between these two groups that we see in conflict in our passage today. Because a few hundred years before this event, certain things were set in motion. A few hundred years before this event, the Jews were exiled from the land of Israel. They were forced to live in Babylon or at other places throughout the Babylonian Empire. And for nearly 50 years, the Jews lived apart from the land of Israel. So I want you to think about this. Think about what takes place over the course of 50 years in a person's life. To say that you put down roots in that amount of time would be an understatement. In fact, 50 years represents the vast majority of most people's lives. Their homes, their families, their employment, their friends, everything was tied to the place that they have spent their exile in. So when the Jews were allowed to return from exile and once again live in the land, only a small percentage did. And in fact, when you think about it, many didn't remember or weren't even alive when the exile first began. Others couldn't afford to pick up and relocate to Judea. And still others were too heavily invested in their new home to even think about venturing back to their ancient homeland. Now, over the years between the exile and these events, more and more people moved back, and yet, but even so, countless more lived on in the diaspora, the dispersion, away from the land and throughout the empire. There were also a lot of changes that took place in the world during, these, during this time period. The rise of the Greek empires brought with it the spread of Greek culture and Greek language, and so Jews in different regions gave in more or less to the Greek culture and the language. And so that by the time you get to the first century, the time period we're reading about here, some Jews spoke Aramaic and some Jews spoke Greek. Some had held more faithfully to the traditions of their ancestors and some had bought into the Greek or Hellenistic culture. And especially here in Jerusalem, the holy city, the Jews who had given into the Greek way of life were in the minority and were often looked down upon by those who had remained faithful to the ways of their ancestors. And as the gospel went forth in Jerusalem, both the Hebrews and the Hellenists, both groups of Jewish people that we just talked about, heard the gospel and many gave their lives to Christ. But here's, here's a reality of human nature. Old habits die hard. As you and I know, sanctification does not happen overnight. And so one of two things happened that started this whole event that we read about today. Option one is this. The Hebrew Christians held over some of their prejudice against the Hellenist Christians, and this was evident by them favoring their own group in the daily distribution. Or two, the Hellenist Christians perceived the Hebrew Christians of playing favorites, favorites in the food distribution. But here's the thing. Either way, something had to be done. There was a conflict that has arisen here, a tension that existed now between two different groups within the early church. And so either way, as the church grew and tensions rose over such matters as these, the leadership of the church had to address it. And the, here's some... Here are some interesting things to know about the way in which the apostles handled this particular situation. Let's, let's just look at some of them. Here's the first one. They recognized that there was, in fact, a problem. That may seem like a minor thing. I promise you it's not. They recognized that there was, in fact, a problem. It's very easy 
Sometimes it seems it's very easy, especially in churches, to assume that a, a situation will just work itself out or that someone else will attend to it or to dismiss the problem out of hand. And all of these would have been mistakes, grave mistakes. Again, this was likely a crossroads event. We all know of churches today that have split over conflicts between Christians. Would we be here today if a major one ripped through the Christian community in its infancy? The apostles recognized that there was a problem. Here's the second observation. They were wiser than Kevin in his CVS days. What do I mean by that? They recognized that this was not a matter that they could attend to personally because they were called to a specific office and to specific tasks. Now, that didn't mean that they ignored the issue. It meant that they had to make a way for it to be handled without detracting from the responsibilities that the Lord had entrusted to them. We read this in verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And so what did they do? They got everyone involved. In fact, this is the first recorded congregational meeting. They got everyone involved to decide what to do. However, the apostles made clear if they were to that they were to attend to the leadership tasks that God had called them to and not to get themselves involved in every single leadership task which would detract from the ministry that they were entrusted with. It wasn't that they were above it, uh, but that they were... But that inevitably, if they were to engage in this task and the, and the amount of time it would have taken to handle it well, it would detract from what was distinctly their responsibility, the preaching of the word. Here's our third observation. They empowered others. So first, they empowered the believers at large by involving them in the process of selecting leaders that would tend to this situation. And second, they gave those who were selected an opportunity to serve in a very significant way. So they empowered others. We see this in verses 3 through 4. It says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so again, we see that they empowered others, and by doing so, they can themselves attend to the things that they particularly have been called to do. Here's our fourth observation. Most or all of those selected were among the Hellenists. That's an interesting observation. In fact, this is amazing to me, and it is so for a few reasons. First, this was not an appointment by the apostles. It's not that the apostles said, well, it's this group that feels slighted, and so we're going to give them the responsibility of leadership here, okay? It was not an appointment by the apostles. This was the election of the entire body of early Christians. Second, the Hellenists, remember, were in the minority, which means that there was a great many of the Hebrews also who chose to select them. That's pretty neat to me. So how do we know that these men were uh, among the Hellenists? Well, by their names. Uh, we see this in verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. 
These are not Jewish names. <laughs> These are not names that would have been given to uh, Jewish children from among the Hebrews. These are names that represent the foreign cultures of the diaspora. And the last person listed, Nicholas, wasn't born a Jew at all. He was a Gentile who had converted to Judaism and now recognized Jesus as the Messiah and so was a Christian. And so my final observation is that, that when the church is led well and everyone contributes to the whole, the gospel advances. Verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Wow. Don't read verse 7 quickly and miss the impact of it. Let's just take a look at what's happening right here. The word of God continued to increase. The word of God continued to gain ground, to break through, to advance as a result of these things. The number of disciples, it says, multiplied. It didn't just grow, it multiplied. In other words, it grew exponentially. In fact, it grew so much that even a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This should shock you. If it doesn't shock you, then you don't understand what is being said here. Think about this. This is significant for many reasons. But consider especially that the priests were subject to the leadership of the high priests, and the Sanhedrin, who had set themselves against Christianity, against Jesus. They served alongside them in the temple. Even if you think about it, their very temple responsibilities included making atoning sacrifices and offerings on behalf of the people before God, and now their entire understanding of atonement has changed in light of the Messiah's atoning death on the cross. Wow. But again, this was a crossroads moment for the church. Everything could have been derailed in much the same way as we know of many other churches in recent years that have been derailed for one reason or another. The only difference is, if the early church were derailed, all of history would have been impacted. The advance of the kingdom would have slowed or stopped. So while God's involvement in this event much be more, might be more under the surface, I have no doubt that he guided this entire process in preservation of the church. And as I stated at the onset, this is, this is more than just a history lesson. What we see modeled here is in fact applicable for us today as we are the church 2,000 years removed, carrying the legacy that's been handed down to us. In fact, churches that do not learn the lessons of this passage have faced, are facing, or will continue to face significant problems. And so I want to share two important reflections for us today in light of this passage. And so here's the first reflection. Problems need to be identified and addressed. Problems need to be identified and addressed. You know, we, we may not have the same problems as the early church. Maybe we do, but we might not. But like all churches, and in fact all groups of sinful people, we have problems that arise from time to time. In the past, to be honest, there have been feuds among families in our church. There have been times when people in our church family have felt slighted by others in our church family. On numerous occasions, we've had needs for people to step up into various roles, but no one has come forward to help. 
And as you can imagine, there are even other problems that have plagued us in 60 plus years of ministry here, and there are going to be many more that come. And so some of our problems of, our, of the past, we may never see again. Thank the Lord. And there are problems that we've never faced as a church that might be here soon. And such is the reality of life until Jesus returns. However, any small problem, if left unaddressed, can have massive fallout. And because of that, problems need to be identified and addressed. We can't ignore them. And so as we consider our passage for today, it wasn't the apostles who even recognized the problem. We see this in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now I can imagine that the apostles were so busy with the ministry that they weren't even aware of a potential problem until someone informed them about it. Now this isn't gossip. This isn't being a rat or a tattletale. This is recognition of a problem and wisely seeking a solution for the good of the church. As we consider our church, and the many ways in which we engage with one another, it's, it's very likely that we have problems currently, which I and the elders are thus far unaware. It's also likely that new problems will develop in the near future that you're going to know about long before I know about. And so for the health of our church, for the good of our members, we all have a responsibility to identify problems and to address them appropriately when they arise. And when it comes to conflicts between members of our church, which if I have to be honest, most of the problems that occur in churches are exactly that. Tensions, frustrations, conflict, sin against one brother or sister in Christ from another. And so when these kinds of conflicts between members arise, Jesus himself provides some great instruction. And if you have your Bibles with you, flip over to Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15. And you, could, you have my permission to put a little mark next to this passage or stick your bookmark right there or even crease the corner of your page so that you could easily find this. This is an important guiding scripture because so many troubles in churches could have been avoided by just taking note of Jesus' words here and putting them into practice. Here's what Matthew 18, 15 through 17 says. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Okay, I'll be honest, a tendency for many people is that when someone does wrong, they immediately go and tell other people about it or go and tell the pastor about it. And when they tell others about it, it's, it's not usually with any kind of hope that the person would repent and be restored. We cannot operate this way. When someone does wrong, we must be willing to address it lovingly and respectfully with them only with them at first. And only if that fails to resolve the issue are other people involved. This isn't to gang up on them, but with the hopes that the ones who are brought in, whether they be elders or faithful Christians who could mediate well between both parties, that they're brought in, that there'll be some resolution. And if that fails, 
then me and the elders should definitely be involved in the situation. Problems need to be identified and addressed wisely. Here's my second reflection for us this morning. We need a bigger and better understanding of leadership. We need a bigger and better understanding of leadership. Our passage today demonstrated the unity of the body of Christ and the shared responsibility for leadership in its various forms. We saw this in numerous ways. First, the members at large identified and called out a problem when it arose in the community of the early Christians. The second thing is that the members at large participated in the selection of those leaders. And third, those from among the members at large who were selected were willing to serve in this role because that's what the church needed. Mind you, it wasn't the most glorious job. It paid nothing. It took more commitment, more time, more energy from them. But they were willing for the good of the church, for the good of the mission, to the glory of God. If we're being honest, many of us have bought into the notion that the pastor leads and we just show up, sometimes only when it's convenient for us. It's also important to note that the old adage that 20% of the people do 80% of the work is typically true in churches. It's even typically true here at Belgrade Alliance Church, as it is, again, with most churches that I know of anyway. There are two major problems with this. The first is that the 20% get tired and burnt out pretty quick. The second is that we could accomplish so much more for the kingdom if 100% of the people gave a, did 100% of the work. Friends, just as Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas stepped up, we need all of our people to be willing to dig in and to step up in the various areas where God has called us. And there are some specific ways. I'll call them out right now. We need more singers in the praise team so that the current members can take a break every once in a while. Uh, We need more people serving in the sound booth so that we don't deal with the threat of no sound, no screens, whatever Josh and Matt are away. We need more people serving as youth leaders to serve on Sunday nights. Man, we have a great group of students. What a waste that we don't have more people getting to know them and sowing into their lives. Friends, I get glimpses, glimpses of what it would be like if we all gave all. I see them at our dinners, at our cake auctions, at our camp fundraisers. I see them when we have a church work day. I love to imagine what an impact we could have for the gospel in this area if we would just press in a little more to lead in whatever way that God has gifted us. Because it takes all of us to pilot this ship, all of us to accomplish our mission.